Evening, everyone. My name is Jerry, and I am an alcoholic. That rolls off my tongue pretty easily now. Wasn't always like that. First off, I want to thank the committee for inviting us down here. It's uh really is a privilege for me to show up in places like this. When I think back about, you know, how this farm kid who became a drunk ends up in a place like this, you can't get there from here. You know, it's one of those situations. Thank you also for the, the bowl of fruit that we got and for the room. It was very nice. Uh, I enjoy that. And it's always nice to, to have that little personal touch. It uh, makes a person feel welcome. So thank you to the committee and to our hosts. Where do I start but the beginning? I was born in 1938. That makes me 60 years old this year. And that's old. Talking about old timers this afternoon or this morning. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm one of those. <laughs> Doesn't feel like that at all. But I was born into a different era totally. Like when I look back now, uh, everything's changed. Uh, I should share with you where I was born. And uh, that'll give you an idea of how different things really were as compared to today. I don't know if you have the same system down here, but in Canada, usually on your birth certificate, it gives the name of a town or a hospital where you're born. Well, my birthplace is registered as Section 33, Township 19, Range 6, West of the Second. See, my mother dropped me in a stubble field, and that's why I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Eh, Not so. Not so. Actually, I was born into a a very good Catholic home. Uh, Two brothers, two sisters. I'm the second oldest. All the other ones turned out normal, and I turned out alcoholic. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And it wasn't my idea. I didn't graduate from high school and say, well, I think I'll become an alcoholic. I think I'll wreak havoc on my friends around me and on my parents and my brothers and sisters and family. I'll make things terrible for my wife and and uh, be rough and tough on my kids. I didn't plan to do that. But it happened. And that's the, that's what I want to share with you today. This was not a planned thing. In fact, if if anything in the world, that is what I consider to be the most despicable thing that can possibly happen to a human being is to turn out to be an alcoholic. And so when I felt myself going in that direction, I would do everything that I possibly could think of and do in order to avoid that. I didn't want to be one of those. And so I fought the thing. I can't remember my first drink. A lot of people share about how they lit up and, and stuff like that. I can remember an, an incident early on in my in my drinking. I would have been about grade 10, going to a Catholic boarding school, and be home on weekends, long weekends at least, uh, like Labor Day. And, and uh, there's a September long weekend and an October long weekend, and it was probably this time of the year. And I was home and I went to a dance. And in those days, we'd have the orchestra up front, a long, big hall, 
all the good-looking girls would sit on that side, all the moms and the grandmas and the aunts would sit on this side, and the men stood at the back, and we'd talk man-talk back there. And the music would start, and the men would file out, pick up their ladies, dance three rounds, take them back, and go back to the back of the hall. And I figured this out. And I saw the girl that I was going to dance with, and she was the most beautiful one in the whole bunch, and she was sitting right up in this corner. So I planted myself right on the front of that black line, and I thought as soon as that music starts, and if it's a waltz, I'm the first one across the floor, and I'll make sure I get my girl. And the music started, and it was a waltz, and something happened to my shoes. (laughs) They just froze. It was like as if somebody had nailed them to the floor. I could not move. I was totally incapacitated. And the people filed out around me, and eventually somebody picked up my girl, and away they went, and I slunk off into the back corner, just kicking myself for being such a wuss. And I hated myself. And somewhere in the next little while, a friend of mine, Frenchie, tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I'd come out. He's got a bottle behind the pool elevator. And so we went out there, and he took a swig out of this bottle, and I took a swig out of the bottle. And I remember how cold it was and how warm it felt. And it felt good. Otherwise, nothing seemed to have changed. But I walked back into that hall. Same shoes, same black line, same girl, same orchestra, same music. It was a waltz again. I was the first one across the floor. See, I wasn't worried anymore that my fly might be open or that I might trip halfway across the floor or none of those things came to mind. I just knew that I could dance with this girl and that's how it went. And I could. And I loved it. But somewhere during the course of that same evening, we must have made another trip out there or two. Because I also remember that same evening, sometime after lunch, sometime after midnight, I was lying in the back seat of my dad's car with my head hanging out the side door, out, out, the, out the side, just puking my guts out and feeling terrible. And in the midst of this, I looked down and saw a pair of shoes facing me and looked up and recognized that they were my dad's. And I felt god-awful terrible. And I swore to myself at that time that I would never, ever get drunk again. And especially not where people that I loved would see me. Especially my dad. And I couldn't handle that. And that was the beginning of 20 years. Of me trying to get that freedom that I felt when I took that first drink. And trying not to go over that line where I would get drunk by the end of the evening. Trying to achieve that balance. See, I I got into a pattern then. I knew I needed to drink. I had to have that drink if I was to be able to function. But as soon as I drank, it seemed to me like my willpower disintegrated. Because I would figure out all of these things that would allow me to get this high and then cut it off and taper off. And somehow or other, I always missed the mark. Now, I shouldn't say always. Because the first few years, a lot of the times, I was able to do it. I'd go out and we'd have a good time. Even early in our marriage, we used to have some good times. But somehow or other, this thing sort of progressively got worse. 
And more often than not, in my, my later drinking years, I would have that first drink, and nine times out of ten, the evening would turn out to be a disaster. And I would wake up in the morning, and I would whip myself for being, for being the scum of the earth and have, for having failed again. It crossed my mind that I was getting to be an alcoholic. I did not want to be an alcoholic. But the, the, the denial mechanism would kick in. And I would say to myself, you know, I would look at the people around me and I could, I could prove to you that they were way worse than I was and they weren't doing anything about their, their drinking. They weren't calling themselves alcoholics. How could I possibly be? I couldn't be an alcoholic. And I knew I was not that bad. And so we went through this game playing of not being that bad. But things weren't that good either. Except that we wouldn't admit it. Julie talked a little bit about the the mind games that we were playing in our house at that time. I remember one incident so clearly. Talking about how I was doing things that I didn't want to do. I went out with a, with the neighbor of ours who drank a fair amount and one of our, another one of our friends. We went on this fishing trip, trip and we were doing this male bonding thing. Drinking. But on the way home, all three of us were sober and, and feeling not too bad. We had caught a few fish. So we, we had dropped the line in the water at some time. And we were feeling okay. And the, the fellow that's our next door neighbor, we're about 20 miles from home, and he was saying, Oh, man, is it going to feel good to get a good hot shower and cuddle up with a nice warm body again, you know? And I was thinking to myself, Yeah, that's good. And uh, my romantic notions went sky high, and I had all these great dreams and expectations of how lovely it was going to be to get home, uh, you know, give my wife a big hug, have a shower, put, get the kids to bed, and crawl into bed with with my wife. It's not what happened. <laughs> was okay with my neighbor. His wife happened to be over at our house that that afternoon. He walked into our house, hugged my wife, hugged, gave his wife a hug, swung her around once. Out the door they went. And I said, "Who left that tricycle in the driveway?" Don't you know that I could have driven over it and smashed it? You know, what's the big idea? And I picked a fight with my wife. Not what I wanted to do. But it just happened. And that's that's the kind of thing that would happen in my house. My expectations were up here, and my my achievements, my accomplishments were down here. And I would know that it's happening. And I didn't want it to happen. And it's like taking the insides and ripping it a piece, ripping it apart like a piece of cloth, you know. And it just tears slowly, one thread at a time, and that's how it felt. And that's the pain. And I would tell you that it's not that bad. But there's a ho- there's a hole in the in the uh, in the basement wall of that house where we lived in Kindersley. We're on a Sunday morning, feeling so frustrated and so angry at myself and frustrated with the world. I just put my my fist right through the wall in sheer frustration for no reason whatsoever. I just hated myself for what I was doing to my wife and the kids and to me. 
although I didn't recognize it. So when I tell you that I wasn't that bad, outwardly maybe I wasn't. I would still show up in church on Sunday morning with three kids well-dressed, and we would look good. But inside, it was like a rotten apple that that rots from the core outwards. It still looks glossy and, and red on the outside, but it's rotten inside. And that's how I felt about myself. And that's how it came to that Sunday morning that Julie talked about when she went to that pastoral care workshop on alcoholism. That's how I was feeling about myself. And when she asked me if I would go, I also don't know where that yes came from. But I'm good at covering up. And right away I covered up because I had a co-worker at the time who had just missed a week's work because he was sick. And when I went over to the house, he was sick all right. There were three empty vodka bottles beside his bed and, he, you know, evidence of puke all over the floor and this guy was sick. And right away when I had, when that word yes came out that I would accompany my wife to this seminar, I said, well, maybe I can pick up something to, uh, you know, to help my friend out. I was doing 12-step work, wasn't even close to recovery yet. But I went. And I didn't sit up front because that's, you know, attracts attention. And I didn't sit at the back because that attracts attention. I sat right in the middle so that nobody would notice that I'm there. And they wouldn't pick on me. But this one speaker, for some reason or other, just zeroed in right on me, right in the middle. And he talked about the profile of an alcoholic, the Jelnik chart or the valley chart that's sometimes called. And he talked about gulping drinks and he talked about... uh hiding supply, and he talked about uh, hangovers, and he talked about uh, things that are happening in the family, and and uh, on and on. And I was squirming back there, let me tell you I was squirming, because for some reason I had that moment of clarity that people talk about, where I could see those things in, in myself and admit them, which I hadn't been able to do. But then I felt pretty good again, because he went on. And he talked about hospitalization, and he talked about being thrown in jail, and he talked about losing a license, and he talked about uh, demoralization and stuff like that, and institutionalization and death. And I hadn't reached any of those, and I felt pretty good about that, because I wasn't that bad. But then he nailed me, right between the eyes. He said, if you, these, these, Signs and symptoms that a typical alcoholic goes through, they're like signposts on a highway. And he says, if you're driving down this highway and you, and you see a sign that says, I don't know too many cities down here, pick on Minot. It says, if you see a sign that says Minot, 250 miles, and you continue down the same highway and all of a sudden you see a sign that says Minot, 175 miles. And then you see another sign, and it says, my not 80 miles. He says, you can be pretty sure if you stay on that road, you're going to get to my not. And it's the same with the alcoholic progression. If you notice a few, see a few of these symptoms in your life, you can, you can be pretty sure that you're on this path. And you're pretty sure that if you continue drinking, that this is where it leads, to institutionalization or death, skid row. And if you continue drinking, that's where you end up. And I think I said something to myself like, oh darn. 
I was not a happy camper. But he offered some hope. He said, you can, when you're on this road leading to Minot, you can turn off any turn off you want. There's lots of turn offs. Anywhere you are along that road, you can simply turn left or turn right, turn off that road. Same with the progression of the alcoholic. When you're on this downward slide, on this progression to, to institutionalization or death, skid row, so you can turn off wherever you want and lead a full, complete, and happy life. Now, I knew he was BSing about that because I didn't believe him for an instant. But what that meant to me is I had to quit drinking. Because what it did to me is it just knocked my excuse right out from under me. All this time, my excuse was that I'm not that bad. And now all of a sudden he's saying to me, how bad would you like it to be? And I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to get any further than this. So here I am. I have to quit drinking, but I can't live without drinking. I really believed that there was no life after rye. You couldn't possibly live a full, complete, happy life. Impossible. But I had to do it. So I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, January the 16th, 1977. And fortunately for me, uh, I haven't had a drink since. So that I used that as my sobriety date. I should add now that somewhere along the line, in the next six months or so, I heard somebody at a meeting say one time that if you can't remember your last drink or your last drunk, you haven't had it yet. And I started thinking back to when I had my last drink or when I had my last drunk, and I could not remember. And I, as sure as I stand here, I assure you, I considered going out having a beer so that I would remember my last drink, so that when I have five years of sobriety, I wouldn't blow it, you know. I'm telling you this to make sure, to, to sort of ask you to watch out what you tell newcomers at AA meetings. Because they don't know the AA message from the little sayings that we make up. They have a right to hear the AA message at an AA meeting. And all these other little neat things that we come up with, like 90 meetings in 90 days, that kind of stuff. That's not the AA message. So be careful what you tell newcomers. At any rate, I go to this first AA meeting. I'm not a happy camper. I walk in, I'm like this. Head down, lip dragging on the ground, arms folded. I'm here. Fix me, you know. Okay. My attitude is everybody else in the world is going to be able to drink, enjoy life, have a good time, and I get crapped on. You know. Sackcloth and ashes for me, cloud over my head, raining on me, everybody else enjoys sunshine. That's how I look at the world. The third tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous is the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I will let you know now that I came to my first many meetings and violated Tradition 3. I did not want to stop drinking. But I felt I had to. I knew I had to. Unless the alternative was skid row institutionalization or death. I knew that now. Somehow I was convinced of that. I did not want to stop, though. 
because I couldn't visualize life without Rai. I sat there for many a meeting, many a week, and just closed. They would ask me to share, and I would just nod my head, you know, left to right, that is. Uh huh. And then one morning, on a Sunday morning meeting, I was sitting there, in the usual position, head down, and a thought crossed my mind. And the thought was that it's been a whole week, and I hadn't fought a craving to drink. In fact, I haven't even had a craving to drink. It just wasn't there. Now, for some people in this room, that's not a problem. That You know, that's no big deal. My wife, for example, you know, if I tell her that, she says, so? For me, that was a big deal. That was the beginning of some hope in my life. Maybe this thing can work. See, all my life as I was growing up, People in religion, the way I under, the way I heard it, maybe not the way they said it, but the way I heard it, was that if you have faith, then you can move mountains. And it seemed like I didn't obviously have enough faith because I couldn't move the mountains that I wanted to move. They wouldn't move for me. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I sat there like this and I watched this mountain being moved, my compulsion to drink, and I came to believe. And that's how things are in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything seems to be sort of backwards. So this message to me was, you know, you see it in yourself, you see the miracles happen in other people, and you come to believe that there is some sort of power that works here almost in spite of myself. And so I went home, and the next meeting when I came back, I decided that I would make this big admission that I'm an alcoholic. And when they asked me to share, I said, my name is Jerry, and I'm a... I'm a, and I couldn't pronounce that A word, you know. It just would not come off my tongue. I hated it so much that I could not use that word in conjunction with my name. And I stammered and I stuttered and I fumbled and I finally spit out something similar to being an alcoholic. Said that word. And that was the beginning. What a small beginning, but that was the beginning. Over the course of the next year, I took a rather scenic route through the 12 steps, which means I didn't open the big book. I told my sponsor I didn't have to do that because I wasn't that bad. That's for those serious alcoholics that were really bad. And I stayed dry. And then I was at a roundup, like this. And I heard this speaker on a Sunday morning thump this big book and talk about having to do the steps as they're laid out in sequence, 1 to 12. And some people, he said there, says there are no musts in AA. He opened up the book, rattled off about 13 musts, one after the other, on about two or three pages, and I'm sitting there. And I think I said, oh darn, again. Because <laughs> he nailed me. So I went home. Talk to my sponsor again. Where do you find step one? Couldn't find it in the big book. Read chapters one, two, and three. I read. And so it went. And I got into the steps. And I just want to share a little bit about my experiences with some of them. This didn't always, this didn't all happen at the 
the very first time through, believe me, it didn't. My first sort of hurdle was step three, because I heard people talking about how difficult it was to turn your will over and life over to the care of God, and they kept taking this thing back, and and here I am trying to, you know, somehow visualize just turning my whole will and life over to him, and me being ending up being a nothing, you know. And I couldn't do that. And then finally somebody pointed out to me that that step starts out made a decision. That's how the step starts out. Just simply made a decision. Quit focusing on the wrong thing. The focus is on making a decision. What are you going to decide to do? Are you going to decide to go back drinking? Or are you going to decide to get on with the steps and work the program of Alcoholics in your Anonymous in your life? That's the decision. And so I decided to go ahead. And it was just as simple as that at that time. Just decide to go ahead with the rest of the steps. And then I read, did my first written step four. Later on I did some more. I'm a math teacher. Was. I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Mathematics is the first level of abstraction. Philosophy is the second level of abstraction. I should be pretty good with abstract terms. They told me to list my resentments. Couldn't think of a one. <laughs> the very next line in the big book says, we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. All of a sudden, that made sense. Put it in the concrete for me, I can understand that. And I had a lot of people I get angry at easily, quickly. All you had to do is visit me in my shower on, on any morning of any school day and you would find me in the shower having this argument with this kid that bugged me the day before and I would step out of that shower mad and I would go to school like that and I would see this kid in the hallway and this kid would look at me, good morning, sir, and I would nail him right now. Just stupid crazy those are resentments I finally figured out afterwards <clears throat> resentment simply means re-feeling the Latin word for feeling is sentire to feel and re means to do it again so you re-feel the same feelings that you first experienced but it's the day after after the stimulus is no longer there kid wasn't around, uh, there's nobody in the shower with me, <clears throat> but I got angry. Why? I was re-feeling the same feelings because they were being played in my head. That's a resentment. And I had lots of those. And I listed them. Same things happened with fear. List all the fears. And again, same thing happened to me. Because it said, you know, I didn't have any fears. I listened to people at AA meetings talk about these nameless fears that they had. And I knew it was because they were serious alcoholics gone way further down that path than I had gone. And so they had these nameless fears. I didn't have any, obviously. Same thing again. List the things that you were afraid of. And I said, whoops. Because all of a sudden it dawned on me. I was afraid of 
getting up in front of a microphone in front of a group. I was afraid of getting out and socializing. I was afraid of mixing and mingling with people. Anytime you put more than two people in a group, I was, I was petrified. Because I, I didn't know why. But when I was going through my fifth step, it's amazing how things happen. Because when I was going through my fifth step, and I was rattling off these different fears, all of a sudden it dawned on me, fears stem from one basic fear. And that one basic fear is, if you really find out who Jerry is, then you won't like him. And I couldn't handle that. I felt so bad about myself. I felt so rotten inside. And I, I had this image that I portrayed or tried to. And the farce was, of course, that I had to portray this image. But the end result of that is, and the fear stemmed from the fact that if you ever saw past that and saw what is inside of me, then you would dismiss me and and not love me and not like me. And so I wouldn't get up in front of a microphone and share anything because you would be able to see into me. I wouldn't put pen to paper and write anything that expressed my opinion because that's then on paper. People would be able to read it and figure out how shallow this person really is. And I love to be quiet and sit in the background and people would say things like, still waters run deep. Yeah, right. It's not how I felt. I knew how shallow I was. That's how I felt. And if you ever found that out, then you wouldn't accept me. And that was the basic fear. And I still struggle with that to this day. Like I have a tough time getting up here and sharing. I have a tough time putting stuff on paper. Procrastination was a big thing in my life. Still is. And it happens particularly when I have to do some sort of a report or, or write a presentation or something like that where it has to be done in writing. I put it off, put it off, put it off. And at the last minute I'll sit down and I'll scribble it off and present it. And right away I have a built-in excuse. I will get up there and I will say, I just put this together last night in about 15 minutes. The underlying message is, if I had taken more time, it would be in a work of art, it would be a masterpiece. But this is all I could come up with in 15 minutes. So it's not really my best, you see. The underlying fear is that if I do my best, and you look at it and you say, well, that's not great, you know, that's a C minus at best. Then, uh, you know, I couldn't handle that. Weird. So my procrastination had really nothing to do with being lazy. It had to do with fear. And so many other things in my life have to do with fear. And the older I get and the, the, the longer I, I continue on, the more I become aware of that. The more experiences I have. How am I doing? Step six. <clears throat> what are we doing? Came to step six, and I opened the book, of course, and I'm doing that out of the big book. And it says we're now at step six, and I read the paragraph, and I read the next paragraph, and the last line of the second paragraph says you finished step seven. And I'm thinking to myself, what happened to six? And of course, being male, I don't ask for directions. 
So I don't talk to my sponsor about this one. <clears throat> I decide that there must there's a thing called a 12 and 12, and it has a little bit more. Obviously, Bill missed this part in the big book, and so he expanded on it in the 12 and 12. I'll read it in there. So I read through the 12 and 12 on step 6. It said it separates the men from the boys. This is an important one. But I couldn't find anything important in it. It didn't really say anything. It didn't know nothing earth-shattering in this one. Eighteen years later, folks, eighteen years later, I'm now a past DCM, a past GSR, a past area chair, a past area secretary, past alternate delegate, past delegate, past trustee on the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still don't know what step six is about. And so I decide one morning, I'm, after I rotated out of my position as, as trustee, I decided to read through all the literature, take an hour every morning and read through all the books. And so I read through AA Comes of Age and Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and so on and pass it on. And I was going through the 12 and 12 and I came to step 6. And I said, that's enough. Still wouldn't ask for directions, of course. But I read that step 6 every morning for about a month and a half. Every morning. And all of a sudden there it was in black and white. Somebody snuck it in the night before when I wasn't looking. <clears throat> and there it was. And it talked about the level of commitment. And all of a sudden, it, I remembered a story that I, I heard a, a speaker at a roundup tell about the level of commitment. This chicken and pig were walking alongside a creek, and they come to an, uh, a bridge over the creek, and there's a, uh, a bum living under this bridge. And this guy hadn't had a, a bite to eat for a couple of days at least. And the chicken looks at this situation and the chicken says to the pig, says, you know, we could give this guy a good breakfast, bacon and eggs. And the pig says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. He says, this bacon and eggs thing, on your part, that's just token effort. On my part, that's total commitment. And that's, the, that's what I get out of step six now is what's, what's my level of commitment to this, to the steps, number one, to the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole? Do I just sort of give tokenism to my group, to my area, to my district, to the fellowship, or is it total commitment? Do I quit with the excuses? And if somebody asks me, my first response is okay. And if I can't do it personally, I will make sure it gets done. That's total commitment. So that's how I try to live. And a strange thing happens. A very strange thing happens. I find that the higher power, as I understand him, is never outgiven by anything that I ever gave. I always got back way more. And not just spiritually, emotional, and, and, uh, and so on. I'm talking physical, material rewards. Because there's things that have happened in the past five years or six years in our lives that have no other explanation. We stumble onto a piece of property that everybody else seemed to have overlooked. Price was right. Giveaway prices, fire sale prices. We happened to be at the right place at the right time and, and got a hold of this. 
and it's a corner of heaven here on earth. It really is. No, we just love it. Stuff like that. It just, it, you know, people brush it off and say it just happens. Yeah, well, sure, it just happened. But I tend to believe that it happens for a reason, and it happens for a cause. God is not outgiven. I, I sincerely believe that. Step seven was another one of these things. I used to read that step seven prayer every morning. No. If I can find it now. See, it's so short in the book, I have trouble finding it. My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character. See, I have this intellectual, alcoholic mind, and it does things. I read stuff, the black stuff even, in the book, but my mind translates as I read. And that's a dangerous thing. Because what my mind used to do and did for a long, long time is it put a period right there. I would read the rest of the words, but my mind had already cut it off. And it says, I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. I used to miss that all the time. They often tell you, watch what you pray for. Well, this is one of those. There's that little clause attached. And if you really want God to remove these defects of character, you have to uh, be prepared to give. Because you're asking him to remove every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness. And if you're not going to be useful, nothing's going to stand in the way. And you're not asking him to remove anything. Tricky. And it's not there by mistake. On the very next page... When it gets into steps eight and nine, it says at the moment we're trying to put our lives in order. But this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That's our mission here. That's doing the steps. To fit ourselves to be of maximum service. That's something. My first year as delegate in New York at the conference... One of the trustees rotating out of service at that time gave a farewell talk. It's one of the trustees on board that I had trouble accepting a little bit. He was a, a New York Jew, you know. And coming from the prairies, he kind of looked a little bit askance at, at these people, you know. Turned out to be the most wonderful fellow I've ever met. I sat down beside him one time for lunch made a point of trying to get to know him. So I asked him what he does for a living. Well, he used to write. He's retired. What kind of things did you write? Ah, for radio, some for television. Like what? Ah, the Cisco kid and the shadow. The Cisco kid? (laughs) This Jew from New York writes about cowboys? Come on. Couldn't believe it. When I was growing up as a kid, my ear was always tuned to the radio, and my favorite stories were The Cisco Kid and The Shadow Knows. You young people wouldn't know about that. Anyway, this fellow, he was rotating out of service, 
And here's one line that I still remember today and apply in my life. And that is that the greatest single gift that God can give every, any human being is for him to be or her to be of maximum, to be of service, to be of use to someone else. The greatest gift God can give anyone is for you to be of service to someone else, to be useful. And I, I believe that today. I really do. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have, and in Al-Anon, we have such a tremendous opportunity. I was feeling guilty some time ago about not attending church. You know, with my Catholic background, guilt is a big thing. And I was feeling guilty for not attending church. And I heard this, this, uh, priest in AA say, didn't tell me, he happened to, to tell another person with the same problem. He says, uh, he says, George, he says, don't worry. He says, there are enough people out there who can carry that message. He says, there are very, very few people who can touch another alcoholic. And you have that, <clears throat> you have that special gift. So you go do that. And that's what I live by. You folks, me, in AA Al-Anon, have a special gift to be able to touch and help another human being. And that's what this is all about this weekend. That's really what it's about. is how to be able to touch and reach another human being and to be of use, to be of service. That's what we're here for. That's what it's about. So step six and seven, they are the biggies in my life today. Because I believe that's where it's at. My level of commitment to the fellowship and trying to be of use to somebody else. Whether it's my wife, my kids, other alcoholics, my mother, my family, a lot of people, my friends. So that's what I try and live by. That big cloud that hung over my head for so long, it disappeared a long time ago. You know? That feeling that everybody else was going to enjoy sunshine and I would get crapped on and, and, uh, this cloud was going to hang over my head, well, it went away a long time ago. And in 1995, at the, uh, at the, um, AA convention in San Diego. I'm a trustee at that time at the, on the General Service Board. And on Friday night at the flag ceremony, there had to be 70,000 people in that stadium. Did they say the registration was less? I don't believe them. There had to be 70,000 people in that stadium. And on Friday night before the flag ceremony, they started that wave going around the, that stadium. And the entire floor of the stadium was covered as well as three tiers all the way around that I could see. And that thing would whoosh around all the way around and then it'd come down and wave across the floor and back up again and around. And I was sitting on the stage and I just tingled all over the place. Just absolutely tingled. And I was sitting there and all of a sudden a thought crossed my mind. On any other given day, at any other given time, I could be one of those people on the third tier, ten rows back, sitting there saying I'm just not going to participate in this stupid wave <laughs> and just sit and would I stop the wave? Nah. That wave would just whoosh over me and keep going. 
Then another thought crossed my mind, and that is that if 90% of the people in that stadium felt like that, only a few people got off here or there, this thing would die. And service in Alcoholics Anonymous is like that, like for me. If I happen to choose to participate or not participate, Alcoholics Anonymous isn't going to die if I choose not to. It's just going to wipe whoosh right on by. But on the other hand, if a lot of people do that, we're going to wither and die. There's another thing that's crossed my mind since then. You know, when the wave comes around and you choose to participate, and you get up there and you go, what happens if you stand and stay there? And everybody else does too. The wave dies. You gotta sit down. I think rotation is like that in Alcoholics Anonymous. You get one chance at it. And as important as it is for me to participate in, in the service of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's just as important for me to sit down. So my farewell message when I rotated as trustee, uh, at that Saturday morning breakfast at the conference in New York, they asked me what I'm going to do when I rotate. And I said, I'm going to rotate. I'm going to sit down. And that's what I'm going to do. Thank you very much. <laughs>